Our spiritual theme for the month of September is expectation, and it's been often said in the 12-step programs that I attend that an expectation is a resentment waiting to happen. (laughs) Don't practice that here. In any event, I'm I'm hoping this morning we can reflect together not only on, on the expectations we bring to community as individuals, personal expectations we have for ourselves, whether we even recognize them or not, but also I'm hoping that we can reflect together on the expectations we have of our community and as a community, and, and how that works for us or doesn't work for us, and do, do we as a community, might we benefit from clarifying those things for one another? So I'd like to begin to by inviting us into the spirit of worship with this reading from the Reverend Gretchen Haley. It's entitled, Let Them Go. Whatever you have come in anticipating, whatever you expect or worry for our world, for the future, for our lives, let it go. Make space in your heart to be surprised. Make room in your soul for a new story to take shape. Let astonishment be possible at this life that remains a miracle. Imagine here the bursting of joy, relentless and resilient, coming in waves, washing over us with music and story and silence. And still, this dreaming together, being hope for each other, and courage to believe in this new day dawning, dawning for us all. Come, let us worship together. This morning's reading comes from the Reverend Jackie Clement, and it's entitled, Lessons from a Car Radio. She says, years ago, when my former car, Rested Soul, turned 10, it developed an unpredictability and surliness often associated with adolescence. In the beginning, it was just little things, like a rash of burned-out headlight bulbs and rogue seat adjustments. But the one quirk that really got on my nerves was the radio. It turned on and off at will, and seemingly at whim. At first, it would just take a while until the car warmed up before it started working. Later, later it would turn off when I started the car. And, oh, no, it would turn on when I started the car and go off a few minutes later, and then come back on again. For a while, it worked when it was hot, and then it worked when it was cold. Basically, it came on and off whenever it felt like it. Over a period of 10 years, I learned a great deal from my car radio, like the words to achy, breaky heart, and the fact that I still remembered all the words to every song from the 60s, even though I didn't remember what I had for lunch. During the four years I was in seminary, I stuck pretty much to national public radio, and since I often drove up to three hours a day, I can relate to that. I learned never get attached to an NPR story, 
because you never know when the radio is going to turn off. This was a lesson in letting go. My radio acted as a Buddhist master, teaching me not to become attached to the state of things as they are or to a particular outcome. I haven't given up hoping for the best, but I've come to realize that sometimes the outcome I crave is formed from high-minded ideals based on experience, reason, and research. Other times, it's just what I want. It's like Galinda says in the stage show, Wicked, something's terribly wrong. I'm not getting my way. The challenge for me is to see the longer view beyond my limited perspective. It helps to remember that life is impermanent and that life is limited and imperfect. This, coupled with the faith that everything and everyone is innately connected, reminds me that clinging to particulars is unnecessary. When I graduated from seminary, three churches within commuting distance of my home were looking for ministers. They were all prestigious pulpits. They were not looking for someone fresh out of school. The night after I received my third rejection letter, I headed out to a meeting at my internship site, feeling dejected and blue. When the car started, the radio was silent. And then, about two minutes into the trip, it turned on to give me half a line from the Moody Blues, Nights in White Satin. The words said, I love you. I know it was only the car radio, but somehow I believed it. <laughs> I have often threatened, you haven't heard me because I haven't said it out loud until now, but I've often wondered what a series of sermons based on driving. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'm embarrassed to share with you my lessons from driving, so it's probably best that I not do that. But. So, Robert Rosenthal was a PhD student working on his doctoral dis dissertation in the 1950s. And he decided he wanted to find out whether or not we as human beings project our disappointment with ourselves onto other people. Sounds like a reasonable thing to research. So he ended up setting up a series of experiments, as scholarly, intelligent people do. And what happened next, he uses the word spooky to describe it. So he randomly selected a group of folks, and he assigned them to what was going to be called a disappointing experience. What ended up happening, and they didn't know this, and they were not particularly disappointing human beings, but this was what ended up happening is that the group of people who had been randomly designed to be disappointing were disappointing. And the group of people who were not, were not. 
Well, this, of course, spanned a whole new area of scientific research, which I now know is called expectancy studies. And as it turns out, it's true. Our expectation of something can have an impact on an actual outcome. Now, a lot of his colleagues got really mad at him because they thought he was you know, not being, he was, first of all, he was calling his peers unrigorous and that they weren't, you know, they weren't impartial, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, we all like to get mad at other people. And he thought he was accusing them of not being good scientists. So he decided to replicate his experiments with rats. Because presumably rats don't know they're being expected to be disappointing. <laughs> Who knows? I don't like get that involved in rat life. So he selected again randomly a group of, of a bunch of rats and turned them over to the, the researchers and said to the researchers, well, these rats were supposed to you know, figure out how to get through a maze and well, they're likely to be disappointing in the way they're able to do that. And another group was supposed to be picked among the best and brightest of the available rats. Well, apparently, it turns out that the disappointing rats actually were disappointing, and that the best and brightest did a, the better job of going through the maze. I don't assess the value of this. I just think it's an amazing story. <laughs> they think that maybe the researchers who got the smart, nice, best and brightest rats were nicer to them and cuddled them more or called them affectionate names, whatever, I, you know, who knows. What interests me in all of this and what interests me in, and what I want to share with you and what I hope we will reflect on together is whatever kernel of truth is in all of this and whatever it is that perhaps we bring in our expectations of ourselves, our expectations of one another, and in particular, our expectations of religious community. Now I'll share a, a, a personal story with you because it was one of many times in my life when I, I suffered personally as a result of having expectations I didn't realize I had and projecting those expectations where they caused harm. And it has to do with my own children. I didn't have children until my late, late 30s and early 40s. With years of looking back and thinking about it and processing and learning, I recognize now that I had expectations of them. They were somehow going to fulfill something in my life that needed fulfilling. They were going to complete me in a way that I hadn't experienced before. Now again, I, this, none of this was, was, was conscious. This was not, these were not goals that I set for them. And of course I had, you know, the dreams and the hopes that we have. As this played out and I began to realize that 
they had no intention <laughs> at all, ever, even a teeny little bit, to fulfill my expectations. I really, and this took a, a while, and I don't want to dwell on it, but it's an example that I still, you know, they're young adults, and I, I have wonderful relationships with them for which I'm profoundly grateful. But I still check myself. What am I expecting, and why? Now, it's reasonable for me as a parent to expect to be treated with respect. It's reasonable to expect that my home and my space will be respected. But it's not reasonable to expect that other people will complete me or give me something that I think I need from them. I have told both of my children more than once that I regret holding these expectations and that I regret the harm that they caused. And so we've talked through that and they have forgiven me. <laughs> and I have forgiven them for not doing it. No. <laughs> All right, I couldn't resist that, but that was totally inappropriate. But it caused pain. So in, in that respect, it's a, it was a hard lesson. It was a hard lesson for me to learn. So what does all of this bring to our being together and the ways in which we are together and can expect one another or should expect one another? It's pretty clear that each of us brings our own needs when we come to religious community. And that mine may be different from yours, may be different from yours, may be different. Each one of us here this morning may bring, even at different times, I might have needed something different 20 years ago than, than I need now. So we are, and we're different people. We're in different places. We understand ourselves differently, right? Different times in our lives. Being kind to one another in light of those expectations is a good start, right? It's a good start for all of us in religious community. There, it is often said it's often said that betrayals that occur in religious community are among the hardest betrayals to heal from because our expectations are so high, because we are people who resonate with values of goodness and values that are life-affirming and values that are welcoming. And we resonate with values that are bigger than any one of us can hope to comply with on a regular basis, much less altogether. We're human. We're human. We're a human community. It seems counterintuitive, but, and many of you know this, but it bears repeating, 
our faith tradition comes from the, the faith tradition of the Puritans, the New England Puritans. The Universalists sort of stuck in there sideways, but, but the way we are organized, the, the basic tenets of our faith come from the New England Puritan traditions. And sometimes we sing like them too, but that's, that's a whole other that's a whole other sermon. They didn't have music, but anyway, that's. In 1648, they published a document called the Cambridge Platform. Has anybody here heard of the Cambridge Platform? Well, you have. Yay! You have. You have. You have now. And in the Cambridge Platform, they laid out what it meant to be a congregational church, which is what we are. The Unitarians are Congregationalists. The, uh, the Baptists, believe it or not, are Congregationalists. And there's, there are Congregationalist uh, congregations, and then, then and there are us. And I'm going to paraphrase, because if I try to find the quote, I'll be fumbling for five minutes. But basically, what they defined as a, as a congregational community was a group of saints. I think that's funny, but a group of saints who come together out of their own. They make the choice to come together. They make the choice to come into a covenant of love with one another. And those are the exact words, a covenant of love. To worship God, which of course we no longer understand in the way that it was understood in the early 17th century. And for mutual edification. That's the phrase used. They believed that that was the only form of religious community that was described in the New Testament in the Bible. That religious community did not depend on authorities that came from on high. There was no Pope. There was no Dalai Lama. There was no Archbishop of Canter Canterbury. That the authority, the ministry, and the work of the community came from each and every individual coming together out their own volition to do this. And the mutual edification was the mutual support, the mutual teaching, the mutual upholding of the values of a free faith. Now, I, I have to share with you that the idea of a free faith really makes me proud and it makes me emotional because it is so precious. A free faith that is not coerced, it is not forced into you, but it is chosen. It is a free commitment. And the fact that you and I today support one another in a search, responsible search for truth and meaning is a faith. That is a faith that is free. It's not cheap. But no, sorry. 
couldn't resist again. I told you I was squirrely this morning. I really do apologize. Or not. This is, this is what was bequeathed to us. And if we choose, this is what we will bequeath to those who come after us. The same freedom, the same respect, and the same opportunity to make that choice and to find a place like this, not that we're better than anybody else. It's a different, it's just, it's a different model. The expectations of the communities that signed on to the Cambridge platform, the expectations were very clear. This, this is what you signed up for to come into a congregation. Now, there were systems that, that basically, I mean, there were systems that basically made it that the church was, you know, supported by taxes and you know, all kinds of other things. So clearly there are historical differences. But the basic premise, the basic set of expectations stood then in 1648 and stand now. When I stand here before you and ask you, what do you expect of your community? I'm asking you to really reflect on that. Not, don't do what I did with my children, but really think it through. Let us think that through together. And then, and then I want you to ask a question that I think we don't ask enough. I'll be straight out with that. What do you think your community should expect from you? When you make the choice and choose freedom and choose a free faith, What should your fellow members, congregants, friends, what should they expect from you? It's a covenant, right? It's promises, it's clarity. And we are idealistic people and we have high expectations. We have high expectations of ourselves. I know I do. And I know many of you do too. And sometimes those are really high and they're aspirational and that's okay. But do we, and I'm really asking this, I'm not being rhetorical. Do we ask enough of ourselves to support one another. And going back to Dr. Rosenthal and his best and brightest, 
or disappointing participants, do our expectations determine the outcomes that we actually have? Do we expect to survive and leave a legacy? Again, a real question. Do we expect to thrive? Do we expect to defend and keep our free faith safe? Because it is threatened. It is threatened. Can we, on the one hand, continue to support one another as individuals with individual needs and individual times of joy and times of sorrow and at the same time make the equal commitment to think of the greater good? We are living in a time when I don't think, I don't hear anybody talking about the greater good. I hear lots of us, often myself included, talking about what I want or what I think is right, all of which is valid, right? It's all part of it. But what is the greater good? What is the greater good? In order to answer that question, Salud. We have to think through this other stuff. What is the greater good? Not can we do everything we want to do, because we can try, and that's a good thing, but what is the greater good? I um, was making Paul late to start our service today. I saw you waving. <laughs> because I wanted to ask some of the folks who have been here for a, for a long time if they could tell me whether or not this has ever been announced before. So I, I, I we, it was addressed to me, but we received this certificate today, uh, not today, this past week, uh, from the Unitarian Universalist Association, and it says, extends our appreciation to the UU Fellowship of Harford County with recognition as a 2020 25 plus honor congregation. In the history of this congregation, you have donated or given the promised share, because when, when you become part of the UUA, you covenant to support all other Unitarian Universalist congregations. And you have done this for 25 years. All right, I know we don't clap, but would you clap for each other? This is a big deal. And when I was at, not knowing that this had come, and I was at the UUA last week, I actually took a picture. There's right in the lobby, there's this beautiful wall with plaques for every honor congregation and ours is gonna go up there now, and I gotta go back and take a picture and bring it back. Bring it back to you. And I just wanna read you, there's, and I, this will be posted so you can all see it. 
And this was from this is from the Reverend Susan Frederick Gray, the president of our association. Every year, each congregation in the Unitarian Universalist Association is asked to give a financial contribution to support the larger faith movement, the greater good. This contribution supports the annual program fund, the single largest source of income for the work of our UUA. This is what allows us to serve the congregations in our association. I'm really proud of you, 25 years. Really proud of us. And I ask you to join with me, to join with the board. Let's do this work of our expectations. Let's do this work of making our covenant with one another and aligning our, expect, our vision, our hopes for the future of this fellowship with our commitment to making that vision come true. Ashe, amen, and blessed be. My beloved, I offer you this blessing. May you leave this place this morning carrying the joy and the hope and the community that you have worked so hard to build. And go out in love, come back in peace. Amen. <laughs>